I think this is helpful for anybody who wants to create their own company, that starting a company can be also an organic process. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to start this. I'm going to invest in this. I'm, I need a team, a space, an equipment. That was much more like natural and organic meeting some people who were sharing uh, similar intent in terms of uh, the way in which they wanted to approach work and design, trying to work together, experimenting, and then slowly we built the team and the company. Hi, I'm Roberto Tassi, and you are listening to Gut Talks, double G, U, double T. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Roberta Tassi, author, lecturer, and founder of Ablo a service design agency, founder of Service Design Tools, a platform for tools and tutorials that help deal with design challenges. We explored her journey into service design, including her early work to define frameworks, tools, and methods. She shared anecdotes and her perspective from her projects in the public and private sectors, in addition to the role of technology and tools in human-centered approaches. A big shout out to Gianluca Brignoli, who has been on the show a couple of times already for making the introduction. So, here we go. This podcast is brought to you by GUT, fostering a culture of innovation to build better products, ventures, and cultures. I'm Maria, and I enjoy adding value and helping wherever I can, widening my spectrum of thoughts, even if it can sometimes challenge the mainstream. This is why we give data a voice and co-create a collective intelligence involving both people who are not always in the limelight and those who are, in order to learn from each other and spread knowledge and critical thinking. All I ask is to rate the show, leave a review, and share it. It's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content. Now let's get started. I'd love to know more about you and your preferences to continue producing this kind of content. So type in go.gut.com slash talks. It takes 60 seconds to complete. That's go.ggutt.com slash talks. Now let's get started. I just want to give a big shout out to Gianluca Brunioli, who actually recommended you. So thank you for this, Gianluca. Gianluca was on Gut Talk season one, I believe, and this season. So Roberta, you're uh, a designer, a service designer in particular. And I remember I met you at the launch of your book a few years ago. <laughs> I got your book, yeah. And I'm looking forward to this because you started early on as you were finishing university or finishing off part of your thesis was on service design tools and you launched the website and then you relaunched it again and it's still on live used by the community. I'm going to start with a question, if that's okay with you, maybe a couple of stories. So when you launched your website on service design tools, what made you do that? Can you expand on this? It's a very good question to start. Uh, actually, when I started the research on uh, the service design tools, I was not really or fully aware of what was service design <laughs> because I was studying uh, communication design. And uh, in those days, I was uh, doing my internship uh, in um, a research center of uh, Domus Academy. And there was there the director of the research center, whose name is Elena Pocenti was one of the first PhD students of the, the University of uh, Polytechnic of Milano in service design. So she was one of the, the, the pioneers, we can say, of the discipline. 
And it was actually, at the beginning, it was, it was her suggestion to say, but look, dealing with services and service design is very difficult because there is always the need of putting together people with different backgrounds, discuss together online. So there is a, a huge need for to support conversations, the conversations that I'm dealing with complex matters. So basically, her intuition was, why don't we look at what type of visual tools and communication tools could facilitate those conversations so that actually designers and professionals could deal with service design. So that was the beginning for me to hear of service design for so and to get started with the world research. Actually, I have to say I got really passionate about the topic on one side because of the idea itself of helping organizations in the public and private sector to, let's say, refine the way in which they deliver services to people, to citizens, to users. So that's something I really like on my work. But also I love the, the research around the tools themselves because I ended up talking to a lot of, in that moment, were like professors or uh, designers in uh, different places all over the world were experimenting with some methodologies and sharing with me their insights. So that's how everything started. Once I graduated, I had all those conversations and uh, insights collected and uh, I thought it was helpful to share them back and try it in some order and kind of observe what different professionals were trying to do with the maps, diagrams, and many other techniques that you can find on service design tools. And I think a good part of the story was that uh, in that moment, uh, there were no standards. So there were a lot of experiments, uh, like the journey map, for example, the customer journey map was one of those experiments, but there were others uh, that were trying to represent the same thing, the experience and the process in other ways. And that's in this moment, we don't even remember because then some tools worked better than the other in the years. And now we have a totally different pictures in which we know what our, let's say, essential in terms of tools that we always use. And it's much more stabilized. Yeah, it's true. That was back in 2009, right? Nine. That you launched and the service design started becoming trendy slowly, slowly. And in Milan in particular. Like it's a small community, but not that small. <laughs> like everyone con is connected. And I had, if you want, episodes on the show with like guests in the field, actually in Italy and outside Italy. So I, I might get into some of the questions or conversations we had, but I want to highlight one thing. You mentioned Elena Piacenti, right? When I was doing my master's actually there at Domus Academy, she was there. Mm -hmm. And it was the year she left, I think. She's in the US now, right? And I think I'm going to put a link in the description because she's doing lots of work in this space also. And I like to connect the dots in the field. I have another follow-up question based on what you, you said. So when you launched service design tools, you said that it was not really prominent. There were lots of experiments going on. Is this what led you to launching the book a few like less than 10 years later? I think at the end, the two things are disconnected somehow in my, my experience. That launch of the website was more to share some knowledge, give it back to the community. And it was really like coming from the experience of a student and 
two different, let's say, research centers approaching the topic. So it was really with sort of academic intent and then obviously used by practitioners as well. While with the book, I think what happened in the meanwhile is that I started to work and to mm -hmm. do service design as, as my job. So at the end with the book, my feeling was more to try to represent what it means to do this profession so that it could on one side inspire younger, let's say, generation to say, okay, I want to do this and I want to learn more about this, but also inspire a lot of people who are already working inside the organizations to maybe, let's say, embed some uh, principles or my, the mindset, let's say, of thinking of what a lot of companies are delivering as the design of a service. And one thing you, I actually want to go back to the customer journey map. Maybe you can highlight what it is, but I remember mm, when you were presenting your book, it was at the launch event, I believe, and you spoke about doing customer journeys on Excel because your clients actually, this is what they would use. They would use Excel and that was what they were comfortable with. So it was their dream and your nightmare somehow, you know, as the design team. So can you share so, a, a little bit on this story? Because I believe it's a funny one somehow, <laughs> but can inspire others clearly. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, on one side, this aspect of the tools has been uh, very important for the establishment of the role of service design because uh, the fact that you can visualize or represent what is happening uh, in the intangible world of the service uh, is at the end something that we have in our pocket and can help us during presentations, during workshops, during mm -hmm. all the difficult conversations we may have. But at the same time, in order to make it work, it needs to also put together people with different backgrounds, with different also tool sets. So at the end of the day, the customer journey map is just a, a sort of logical analysis of an experience from the perspective of the person who is living the experience itself. So you, what you need at the end of the day is a timeline, so columns <laughs> and uh, you can use the roles to add uh, details about uh, what is happening inside the experience and the interaction with the different touch points. And that's something that you can easily do in Excel as well. So mm -hmm. no problem what type of uh, instruments you end up using. <laughs> also, uh, also PowerPoint is fine. Now I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you use everything. Well, it doesn't, as, long, as long as the results are there, yeah. And it helps everybody. <laughs> so I have a question on that one here. There are companies who hire like customer journey professionals, similar titles, like customer journey specialist, head of customer journey, things like that. And as designers, it's also sometimes a big conversation to say that the customer journey is not a deliverable, right? It's not something that you're going to deliver. It's a work in progress like all the time. Things change and evolve. What's your take on this? Yeah, that, uh, I ended up, in, let's say, intercepting those open positions as well. And I was like, oh my God, what? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's difficult to imagine how that become a profession on its own for me because I so always see the, the aspect of mapping the journey as functional to many things that um, 
uh, different roles inside the organization are doing and not necessarily the most relevant part because a lot of time our work is described uh, through the tools and maybe I'm one of the, let's say, person in the, the, not in the good position to talk about it, but anyway, uh, not the fact <laughs> where we talk about our work, we talk about the tools, we talk about the deliverables. I think there is, what is behind this uh, is the attempt to try to make it sound more scientific. So that basically if you are in front of somebody who is doubtful about service design or what you can do inside the company, you have sort of an easy way to explain it. They are mapping the journey, they are doing this, this, and that. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of uh, other, let's say, variables and dimensions to consider. And I think the risk uh, if we take it down to mapping the journey, for example, is that we are missing the opportunity to maybe fully have an overview of, for example, how the service work or to connect uh, a bit better in different parts of the organization or to look at also the aesthetic dimension of the service. So at the end, there is always a bit of a risk of when you are basically stretching all the activities inside a deliverable. Who's writing those job titles in general? Like how can you educate on? Because looking at it from the inside, if you don't know what service design, design thing, whatever, call it whatever you want, if they don't know what it is exactly and are taking the tool and singling it out, actually putting it in a silo different context, and this is what needs to be done. I'm trying to imagine what would be like the day-to-day of someone who's like head of customer journey or customer journey specialist doing what? Especially if it's a big organization. I've seen this as a requirement or an offer for large organizations. And the other part to it is how to educate those companies on the fact that this alone is a buzzword maybe, but that's alone not going to help you. What's your experience with this? I can make some assumption because I mm-hmm. never met directly somebody writing that job opening position. But for example, I met at some master courses of polymy, of polydesign in particular. I met... Just to say, polymy is like Polytechnico di Milano yeah, design yeah, department. Yeah. I, yeah, I met some uh, professionals who were coming to study uh, user experience and they were basically sharing uh, something similar to what you are just saying. Basically, my company is asking me to map, I don't know, I've been mapping 50 customer journeys in the past month. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And in my perception, where the situation in which there is that type of request is mostly linked to a lot of, let's say, focus on the technical aspects or on the te- technological development of, uh, of a specific solution. So when the, you have uh, a lot of different, uh, let's say, use cases to support with maybe a website or an application or a digital ecosystem or maybe with a customer care service. But I think it's mostly because of the technological part, let's say. So... And that makes me think that maybe there was somebody who was more like an engineer uh, asking for that type of um, support. And I think it's also connected to the fact that even if now, and you also said it, the service design has been having a kind of a long, let's say, 
longer history and we are not in 2009. Uh, there are people who are actually working as service designers in the company. But that acceleration has mostly come with uh, the digital transformation aspect. So, so when companies started to deal with the needs of integrating a new touch point in the experience of understanding how to restructure user flows. And so if you take it from that corner, there is actually needs of remapping a lot of processes and understanding specifically what, what are the features needed. And that's maybe why then you believe that you need somebody that is really like focusing on that. It reminds me of what I saw, uh, I think a couple of years ago, almost some companies were hiring service designers who would also do HTML, digital marketing, you know, with HTML, obviously CSS as well, right? UX, that, okay, you could kind of understand, right? But that there, there was a list of things that were like, are you hiring Superman? And that's the thing about design in general is bringing people together, not just doing it all. So how do you educate? I'm assuming that you have a lot of education to do with your customers, sometimes coming with a specific request and then you know or you find out very quickly that it's something else that they need that is more, I don't know, culture related rather than feature related. So how do you deal with that? Maybe if you have a story here that the listeners can enjoy and learn from. Before, yeah, I want to maybe comment on what you were just saying yep. related to the fact that you end up describing all these talents and characteristics of the designer and you are like, okay, but how you know, would a person be able to do all these things? <laughs> well, <laughs> on top of it. So I think when I was uh, writing my book, for example, at some point uh, I was coming to a similar, let's say, point in which... I was describing all the soft skills and hard skills that service designers are supposed to have. And then there is a chapter dedicated to, let's say, different ways of interpreting the profession. Because at the end of the day, there are a lot of activities that may be needed or that are related, let's say, to something complex uh, to design like a service. But it's almost impossible, in my opinion, to be equally, let's say, competent in all the aspects that may be needed from research to strategy, business and prototyping. So at the end, uh, you have uh, a variety of professionals, as in many other fields. What we, the, the sort of the mistake that uh, sometimes also myself or other people in the field have been doing is that we tend to speak of the service designer as like one thing that is kind of one type of professional. While obviously it's not similarly to, for example, if we take, if we consider product designer, there are many different specializations, interior sure. designer, fashion designers, and then also for other jobs outside the context of design on its own. And uh, this is an aspect that in my career I'm becoming more and more keen on, that is not all service designers are equal. And then uh, you can pick who you want to work with and similarly to what you do in other type of uh, fields. And so this connects back to your question in a way about how you convince people about what they really need. And I think in general, I always try to establish a personal connection with the organizations I'm working with, especially now that I'm more in the space of an independent agency. 
So mm-hmm. the reasons why at the end the company like to work with us uh, is also that they like the approach, they like to have that type of, let's say, connection on the project and the connection of the project on the project that is based on transparency and trust. So not being, let's say, a big organization or not having a lot of expectations that I have to see fulfilled for my business at the end of the month or the year, I think puts me in an easier position, myself and my team, to say, look, this project doesn't make sense or we don't want to work on this uh, because we don't see it going anywhere. I think obviously it's not always easy like I'm describing it, but at least you can play that card that maybe in other situations you don't have. So what do you enjoy the most in what you do? This is very difficult to answer because now I'm more in the position of, let's say, trying to manage my agency and develop our future in terms of both type of projects that we do, but also in terms of let's say, direction for the group of people I'm working with. And I'm not sure that's my favorite part of the work because I really like to deal with the project, to have a challenge to solve almost, to analyze something that is very complex and then uh, turn it into something that we can easily discuss and come up with a solution. That's my favorite part. And you have done this with private companies and governments. Can you tell us more? Do you you have stories if you were to... I'll, I'll tell you why I'm asking this is because I recorded an episode with Callum Cameron, who's actually Australian, but he's been living in Estonia for 20 plus years. And you know, Estonia, like the e-residency, the first digital society, everything's connected, everything works. There's no bureaucracy, there's no paperwork and all of that. Obviously, it's a smaller country. It's a more recent country. So we can't compare it to other countries that are older and have not just a million and a few more, like in terms of population, right? So what was your experience working in the public sector and the private sector? Like, I'm not asking you to compare, but if you have some anecdotes to share, just to give uh, a bit of a sense of reality to the listeners. I'm always going back to listeners because as we're growing this podcast, I realized that, for example, Politecnico di Milano, so far, most of our listeners are in the US. This is why I needed to highlight some words to people know. So yeah. But by the way, it's not sponsored. This podcast is not sponsored. So So story, I think for public sector projects, and I think Maybe it's also one of the reasons why there is all this interest around service design in Italy is that when it comes to the public sector, we are definitely not the best example. And also in my mind, there has always been uh, a mess uh, when uh, a citizen has to figure things out with all the different layers uh, from region to nation to the municipality, etc. So when there was the opportunity to go and work for the government, first of all, it was kind of my dream <laughs> since I started to really to do something in the service wow. here. Yeah, because you are like, okay, finally I can help fixing something that really like doesn't work. But it's like a football player who's playing for like the country. It's like you felt you were wearing the Italian uh, national, I don't know, outfit. La Malietta, we call it. Yeah. 
Probably the only time in which I developed some kind of nationalist attitude. But okay, so I was super happy. And I think something I learned there that I carried also to the private sector because actually there was the, the whole idea of the digital transformation team of the Italian government I've been part of was to bring talents who were used to work in the private sector, most of them also abroad in the US or in other places, bring them back to Italy to join forces and solve some of the critical issues with the digitalization of public sector services. So there was a lot of knowledge coming in, but a lot of things that I learned that I could bring then in my experience later on. One in particular was that I was convinced that, that we were all convinced that changing things there was super difficult. And to find ourselves in a situation in which people were really like hard to move from their position, that definitely can happen. But then that wasn't necessarily true of the entire, let's say, system that we have been dealing with. And our director managing the digital transformation team, whose name is Diego Piacentini. We mm -hmm. used to be a, a manager at Amazon and called back to Italy from the prime minister to take this, the ownership of this um, task force. Basically, it was always said that uh, we will work with the people that will follow us and that have really like the passion, the energy, the motivation, the interest to work with our team on this important challenge. And so mm -hmm. that basically led us to, I think, prioritize and look in a different ways at everything that we were doing. Every time we were meeting with new stakeholders or starting a new project, there, there were so many things to do, but every time was kind of, okay, let's have a sense of where this could go. Are these people really like able to follow our rhythm in a way and the peace and help us bring this project to the success or it's full of obstacles. And I think that was a, kind of a surprising for me in that moment mindset to consider the possibilities because you tend to think, oh, I want to do the biggest project that is going to have the highest impact, but maybe uh, you underestimate the fact that if uh, there's people around that particular, let's say, project are not following you, it becomes a nightmare. And uh, I think after that experience, I've been working uh, in the private sector again in digital transformation processes and in general processes of change of organizations uh, in the private sector. And that learning was super helpful uh, to better move, let's say, also in other contexts and the better, let's say, manage our energies as a team with regards of what we were doing and we could bring to an organization. And it's something I learned there in probably the most uh, chaotic situation. It was a good way to have a direction. Is that one of the best pieces of advice you have received in your career that would you like to pass along? Yeah, that was one of the best. Okay. There is nice. another one that I, I don't know if I'm doing it right, but it's something that sticks to my mind. It was from Thomas Sutton, who used to be the founder of the Frog Milan team and now is working in AstraZeneca. And one day he told me like, 
sometimes it's better to say fewer things, but well, instead of a lot of things, just because you have a lot of things to say, doesn't, you don't necessarily need to tell them all. And I think that's something that sticks to my mind as well. Yeah, I think it resonated even more with you because you said your background was in communication, more visual, and this is like putting words and visuals together and balancing it out. <laughs> I think those would definitely be good takeaways for listeners. And I like the story of the public sector because we tend to have assumptions when it comes to the public sector just due to our experiences. So you just went into that as a massive challenge. Based on what you're saying, I'm visualizing it now. Going in with a massive weight on your shoulders, right? And then you have Diego, right? Who tells you this, like we will work with people who follow us, right? And then, right? And, and that probably allowed you to carry on, carry on doing what you're doing somehow and taking it with you afterwards in terms of work. So what made you leave the public sector and are you still working with the public sector? No, I left uh, that, let's say, specific project. Actually, it was a natural end of the task force because ah. it was a temporary installment of three years. And then after three years, uh, it was turned into a permanent department uh, in different ways. So that experience came to an end for most of the people there. The ones that stayed, who stayed are still working uh, on uh, the, the services that we initially designed uh, and that obviously are now in a phase of uh, full deployment and uh, maintenance and uh, new features coming in. And so it, it's like shifting from a startup to basically a fully established uh, company. So okay. I think that's one was one of the reasons why at the end I ended up not staying because I found it interesting uh, in that initial phase and maybe for the type of uh, work I like to do a bit less uh, later on. And also I already had in mind this idea of trying to put together, create the situation of having a small team and an agency that may stay and work with different types of companies. And that's what I ended up doing. So what was the biggest challenge for you to start Oblo, which is your agency? First of all, I want to say, and I think this is helpful for anybody who wants to create their, their own company, that starting a company can be also an organic process. So it, that's the case of Oblo. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to start this. I'm going to invest in this. I'm, I need a team, a space and equipment. That was much more like natural and organic, meeting some people who were sharing uh, similar intent in terms of uh, the way in which they wanted to approach work and design, trying to work together, experimenting, and then slowly we built the team and the company. So now that a few years are now I've been going through since that moment, because this whole conversation started in around 2017. And now it's been a few years. So I think the most difficult part, and maybe not for me 100% because I, I feel I was lucky in, the, in that process, but it's finding the right people around you that believe uh, in the same uh, mission, we can say. And obviously you can influence the process, <laughs> but that's still a big, uh, big part of it. There was also somebody in the team, in the very initial team, left, for example, 
And obviously those are losses that it's very hard to replace because it's like you are fine, you are starting something together. You're almost like a founder of uh, the company. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that with that initial part of the team and then group of people, obviously now it's a different uh, situation. And I need to say it, uh, even if it's quite obvious, uh, but starting a company in Italy is difficult uh, from an economic standpoint. So I know that one. Yeah. I was helping startups actually get started. And unfortunately, the first year we had to ship them to the UK to incorporate in the UK because it's just much easier. And now Estonia is much easier as well. But I think there are other nice things about Italy. We can't have, I think, the best of all worlds, but it is true that starting a company is difficult. It's going back to the bureaucracy, right? And the digital services. Probably that was not a priority when you were working there. And because things change all the time anyway. Yeah. So you have, let's say, one of the things that was on and off was having a notary. Then it became, no, you can just do it online. Then it was like, no, no, you actually need to, a notary and go do it there. And then it's like, no, do it online, you know, and less conversations in that sense. Just to putting things in context to uh, the listeners, just to see maybe that might sound a basic thing, but this can be a lot for a startup actually, or a company starting up. So going back to what you're saying, what do you look for? Because obviously people are the key thing. I deal more with startups and it's the founding team that matters and then you grow. In your case, you started an agency. What do you look for when you want to hire people or when you want to collaborate with people? How do you do that? I think at the beginning, I was mostly looking for people who could really like share similar approaches. While uh, now that um, we kind of established us, our way of being and working, we are more looking for people who are different in terms of background perspective and could maybe disrupt a little bit the way in which we established things. So definitely it changed. And then besides that, I'm very much open <laughs> to... <laughs> To see what happens. Also, my main partner in the company, she is from Russia. So it's already between me and her, I think, a lot of diversity. <laughs> Are you hiring? Just if anyone wants to apply. Okay. No, 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 no. No, not hiring. No. Don't apply. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but clients, yes, always open right to that one. So you, you mentioned one thing I wanted to touch on also. When you first started your service design tools website, when you launched it, it was more of an intuition between you and Elena, you know, to get this going. My question to you and going back to the name of this podcast is what's your approach or your relationship with your gut feeling? Absolutely. Yeah. 100% essential in my life. <laughs> yeah. Now in the sense that I trust it a lot typically. So maybe I would immediately have the type of feeling towards something then not consider it at all for a while because I'm like, uh, as for many others, probably the rational part comes in and say, oh, but maybe you don't know, you don't know nothing about this. It's going to take a lot of time, etc. But then it always goes back to, to that initial feeling. So yeah, I tend to trust it a lot. Do you have, I don't know how to frame this. I don't like the way the word failure, because it's always about learning, experimenting, but given this is the context, 
Do you have a kind of failure story that you never shared? There was one uh, related to... The, um, I think most of my failure stories, or not just in my professional life, but also <laughs> in the rest of my life, are related to maybe investing probably too many, many energies into something or trying too hard into something that since the beginning probably I should... I don't know, consider in a different ways. And it happened also with service design tools. We uh, established uh, a collaboration with uh, a team in the university to advance the research. And that was a huge investment in terms of uh, time, effort and energy for us. And we got basically nothing out of it because we were not aligned on maybe the process to follow, the, the final attempt. There were like really like things that came, they were clearer after when uh, we, after uh, the, the collaboration was over, but it was not that clear at the beginning. And for me, it's obviously not something that it influenced part of my work for a while, but also part of the work on my team. So something also harder to kind of explain and reboot after probably there was the chance to explore new tools in that way with an overlap with other disciplines that I don't know if we will have another chance. And I think that was obviously it's not, I don't like also to use the word failure because otherwise we wouldn't risk yeah. anything. But uh, for me, that's something that has been uh, heavy in terms of, yeah, investment. Uh, mental investment in the relationship that didn't work. Yeah, you said a big thing. I don't know if we will have another chance. Like, that's a big, big, bold uh, statement. But obviously, the fact that you're talking about it kind of knocked you somehow. How did you feel about all this investment you put in place? And I just want to highlight investment is your time, is your effort, is the reward and disappointment somehow. So it's not just money in that sense. So how did you feel after this? What is it that's making you say, I don't know if we will get another chance? Because this sounds like a pro very promising project you started years ago, and it might have led to a love and hate relationship in your case. Yeah. Yes. I can see you smiling. <laughs> it's on something that has been, I have been doing for many years uh, out of my time on mm -hmm. top of, of paid work, if we can uh, yeah. call it that way. And so it's been difficult to carry, move it forward and carry the research forward, uh, trying to find time among all the other projects. And that was also probably one of the reasons why I kind of had in mind that, okay, but at some point, if I start the company on my own, I can, that project could become a side project of the company, still maybe unpaid. But there is the context and the environment to continue the research with more energy and with the right, let's say, setup. But the reason why I say I don't know if we will have any chance anymore is that when something is a side project and you decide to at some point to say, okay, let's invest on this and that after a couple of years doesn't work, then Obviously, to try and reboot that, uh, it requires double the energy uh, because it's always a, a kind of a side project. So I, I'm not saying at the end, I hope we can find a way to, to keep evolving the research, but uh, the chance of doing it together with an official university partner is, is a bit lost. 
And I think related to that, uh, what I told me after is maybe that I think that when, wherever you are building that type of partnership or collaborations that are not necessarily regulated by the business process as usual, mm-hmm. that you apply with clients uh, is be just trusting, uh, let's say, uh, um, less in- informal, I would say, agreement uh, is not enough. Yeah, that's when I say just don't trust your gut too much on business. Like it's, it should be formalized somehow. Otherwise, the risk of being very disappointed can be big because you don't have the same expectations, I guess. You know, going back to like what design is about, is also somehow setting the expectations. And one of the difficult things as designers is doing it for the others and less for ourselves in a way. <laughs> So the question on that one here, I know this service design tools, I'm assuming it's quite of an emotional project for you because you started it a long time ago. And I mean, everyone in the design community in Milan at least knew about it, right? I mean, I knew about it as well. So it was one of the main websites to check. So is it time to turn the page? Like, do you need a closure with it or you still have hope for that project? I will think about it tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, give me a call after. <laughs> I, actually, it's a very good question <laughs> because I think for now, the answer for me is I still want to continue it with different meanings, probably. So mm-hmm. back in the days, the meaning was more to try to align people on what was the meaning of certain techniques and what were the possibilities. Then it has become, now it's more like a sort of dictionary of service design and the different mm-hmm. tools that we are exploring like more advanced methods inspired by other disciplines such as system thinking, behavioral science. We are looking at speculative design. So all of that is also kind of in place. And I hope to continue doing more of it because actually the nice part of it is that we are sharing now the things that we experiment with and we use every day on the projects. So it's interesting to not to keep them for us, more with the open community and sharing spirits to try to share what we have been uh, creating and also try to have conversations around them. So I think that part could continue. Okay, so you thought about it already (laughs) for now. I like what you're saying here and where this is heading to because Who's using it primarily? Are they the same people who have been using service design tools? I don't think so, but I don't have any data. So it's more <laughs> my, my personal perception based on obviously people who come to me or write us. There is the more the time now from its launch, the more it's used mostly by students or people who are encountering service design for the first time. And with that said, I think there are a lot of conversations going on around how service design tools and methodologies, et cetera, could help approach the new challenges that we have in front of us. I'm thinking of all the sustainability related um, goals and uh, all the challenges brought by new technologies applied on the design of services, et cetera. So there is always a conversation around how do we do it better? And obviously it's easier to have that conversation with somebody who is exploring the practice for the first time compared to the conversation you could have with somebody who is, I don't know, has been working the same way for years. I like the fact that you guys are keeping it relevant 
in that sense also can anyone contribute yeah yeah oh there anyone is, contribute. Uh, yeah okay. yeah there is a call to action directly there to share techniques method tools reflection i like where you're going or heading to with this because if we go to more if you want traditional organizations but also people who are kind of afraid of change without being afraid of change starting with a tool can kind of break the ice in that sense and get conversations going so my question to you here is could service design tools have been your company actually and not oblo like this research component that you're talking about have you ever considered this yeah i think no for two reasons in my opinion one is that the nature of service design tools is it's more like from the community to the community itself and turning that and all those contributions into something that is more proprietary i think i wouldn't have done it and also the other part is that i don't necessarily believe that the tools make the difference <laughs> no i'm not i didn't say it can start a conversation but i yes, also yes. totally agree that the tool allows Yeah, I think I think this is a very important point because I think oftentimes, and I relate this back to, I'm using blockchain or I'm using the customer journey map. For me, it doesn't matter. It's what are you trying to achieve? Whatever you're using or Excel, right? As we said at the beginning, it doesn't matter and how you're using it and in which context. So um, maybe, I don't know if you want to add something to this, but this is a very important point, actually, just to make sure. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I'm drilling down too much on the service design tools, but for me, it takes me back to the early days of service design. And I just wanted to know more about how your brain's going about this, because what I try to do on this podcast is also stay, see what's in people's brains, not only <laughs> what we have available to us already. But since we were talking about research, how does research play a role in your service design process i think it's an everyday presence and uh, maybe a common trait that we all the people in our team i'm in my agency now we are eight ten people and i think it's one of the common traits we have uh, is that we strongly believe keep experimenting with new things and that makes us study <laughs> a lot and continuously study <laughs> Uh, maybe not uh, the easiest thing to do because then oftentimes you find ourselves in a position in which you're like, why don't we are doing the same thing as we've been doing in other projects that we know very well that is going to work and uh, everything is going to be fine? No, I think we are always more questioning it and uh, trying it differently. And I think it's, I love it. I mean, it's how I... I approach work and I, I love when I see the other people around me doing the same. Because you have it also on the Oblo website. You say that you guys are focused on research. Why do people come to you? I need to interview them. <laughs> I don't know. I think at the end, if you want to do service design in a geeky way, probably is a good place. <laughs> I can already see. I can already see a GIF of something, some sort, like doing service design in a geeky way and you as an avatar somehow. Yes. So yeah, go ahead. Well, maybe something that I see is also that it's kind of an alternative, again, compared to going and work for 
bigger consultancy or for a company. And I think that works for people who maybe have tried it and didn't like the large environment or being in a very, let's say, competitive space or maybe people who are interested in a different type of balance in between work and their life because at the end of the day, a smaller structure also maximizes the time that you dedicate to work. I remember when I was in my previous company, sometimes I was starting re to, to do my job at the end of the day because the rest of the day was going in meetings and all sorts of things. I think that's not the case. So it gives you a bit of uh, a better balance. So I think naturally. I want to shift a little bit towards AI. Before we jump into this, is there any instance where you had some sort of AI, or let's put it that way, more generative AI, where you were like, whoa, this is really cool, or I didn't expect that. So that's basically what my business partner, whose name is Yulia, repeats me every single day and multiple times a day. <laughs> Hello, Yulia. <laughs> Ciao, Yulia. So basically, I need to play the other part because otherwise we are screwed. So every time she's enthusiastic about the new ways in which she was using one of the generative AIs, mostly for synthesis or to yeah, analyze information from uh, research that we have been making. Every time I need to, to cool her down a little bit. <laughs> but actually, as many others are also discussing in these days, uh, there are parts of the work that could be in this moment, most accelerated by the mm -hmm. use of the generative AI, I would say. And you are experimenting with tools and some practices in yeah. your day to work. Are you actually using them or are you still exploring in-house? I think in general, so there is like a common uh, baseline everybody is using them for. That is more mostly. We write a lot of uh, research reports and mm -hmm. we need to explain a lot of after conducting user research activities so qualitative interviews for example so yeah uh, having a support in extracting uh, let's say meaningful parts of the interviews and stuff like that is very much the baseline and then experiment more related to okay what can i achieve if i really like use all this bunch of data i have as a source of information can, can we imagine a future in which we are, I don't know, delivering it that way to the clients so they interact directly with the data that we found, uh, stuff like that. But in my personal, and this is really like myself and maybe not opinion of my colleagues, I still mm -hmm. haven't fallen in love with these ideas and I'm more the one who think, the one who think that in this context, our role is to working on the deep insights and the quality insight that you cannot find uh, just by speaking with the generative AI. That's an interesting point, actually, I want to pick up on because clearly there are lots of startups that are getting funded that are gen AI related with lots of data that is not always trusted, verified, whatever. So I think this is my fear, having seen quite a few actually that are getting either funded or winning competitions. I mean, in my opinion, competitions don't always mean a lot. But this is the fear here where you talk about replacing lots of qualitative data you can have 
that can make a difference into something generic that can be out of context and lead to results that we don't wish for, we don't expect, but can be a huge burden in terms of costs to companies, but also impact on end consumers or users or whatever. I think on that one, seeing it from just another perspective, this is, I think, the fear. But just like in any, I think, breakthrough or so, we will have lots of noise and then get it to a point where it's balanced again. So at the same time, we do need this to see what works and what doesn't. <laughs> but again, it's about making the right choices and ask the right questions, I guess. I think it will be more interesting to have this conversation in a while. Everything is happening in these days with OpenAI and uh, Microsoft, etc. It's more interesting, uh, actually, to me, that type of, um, let's say, debate and conversation. Because when it comes to the applicability into our everyday work so far, I think fine, nothing disruptive. Are we going to see an upgrade or if you want a section for service design tools with some additional gen AI tools? I think at the end we have been focused a lot in trying to understand if with the tools that we have, we are able to handle the design of um, a service that is based on AI because mm -hmm. things change. Uh, imagine yeah. that with certain uh, services, you could have uh, an AI assistant instead of the user. So we are wondering, uh, like, if the, the tools and the methods that we have been using up till now would put us in the position to handle those type of projects. Or if we need something else, that's more what we are exploring uh, more than the generative AI on its own. Do you have some insight you can share? Yeah. Uh, or not yet? Yeah, I think there is probably we will see combine the users and the needs instead of mapping just the personas to map the relationship that they develop with not the service itself on its own, but also with uh, potentially the assistants. And I think there are a lot of interesting questions there. What if you want to change your AI agent at some point? What if the experience changes in based on the personality they have? There are a lot of things that we still have to talk about and then design at the end. How is this going to affect humans? Because if you were my real a agent, like real Roberta agent, and then I tell you, I don't like you, I want to change you. Now you'll get offended with the AI. Roberta, AI agent, whatever. Give me John, who cares, right? And then how is this going to affect people on the long term and people to people, like real people to real people relationships? We don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> I I'm asking you this because I know you work on future trends. You do lots of research and you're into future trends. This is linked to behavioral science and all of this. So what is it that's exciting that you're working on today? What are you mapping out? What are you foreseeing? I'm not asking you to uh, have a crystal ball, but it's just your insights, really. I think at the end, it's really like the moment in which we need to start really like reflecting on these elements. They are not new at the end. Uh, if you think of the movie her was many uh, a few years ago and now we are seeing what it means uh, for example to have that type of experience or to realize that 
the AI you are talking to is the same for thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So mm, what we are trying to do is to look back on one side at the principles that regulate human-computer interaction or that have been regulating it in the, in the years or in general inspiring the work of designers and developers because on one side, those elements are still critical but are critical in new ways. So how do you feel in control of the AI that you're using? How do you perceive transparency? How do you go back if you made a mistake? How do you cancel something? And so on, I could, could continue forever. And so what we are exploring in these days, uh, together with the help of uh, a student who is doing uh, the um, thesis on, uh, on this topic, uh, is try to understand what are also the patterns in terms of interaction that are replicated uh, throughout uh, so that uh, we can uh, at least have a sort of reference of best practices. Uh, so if you want, if I want to... Um, I don't know, notify a user of something that was happening in the background and make it visible to the foreground. How do I do it? There are ways in which some services have already started so we can learn from that and develop our language of knowledge and confidence with these elements. It's still, I think that the the cool part is still that, that there are a lot of things that we still have to understand about it. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of unknowns. Things happen every day and it's hard to like to stay up to date because you don't want to play a catch-up game after. So h- how do you stay informed with the latest trends in terms of tech and not just tech, like w- what's happening in the space of what you're interested in? What do you read? What do you search for? What do you listen to? I think in general, I tried also with the people working with me more closely to rely on each other as amplifiers of information. So basically we have this as many other companies do, but we do. It's very important ritual for us. Like every Monday, there is somebody who is taking, take almost one hour to talk about a specific topic that is brought by one of us. And it's something that everybody, every time we, sh- we change person. So that's, for me, I realize that has become an important moment of information related to trends and stuff like that, because we focus just on a very specific theme, maybe something that was not in my radar, but that somebody else was catching, and then we explore it quite in depth. Another thing that we do as a team is that we have been starting to host small meetups, and I think that's also actually something situations in which I'm actually learning new things uh, every time because we cut it down to uh, service design meets something like financial sector or public sector or AI, we've been doing one. And uh, every time we invite specialists from uh, either companies we know or people we have been reading stuff around, it could be in in person or online, and that's obviously a good learning moment. Besides that, in my uh, personal time, I tried recently to read more about, let's say, anthropologic evolutions and in general, like human behavior. Uh, and again, I think it's nice in my everyday work to have this counterpart with my partner. Who, she's totally into technology and she's always reading about new technological developments. So I think we can <laughs> balance a bit each other and exchange 
actually, we have a lot of interesting conversation. Thank you for that. And I have a few more questions for you. Okay. Just like how we started, I want to <laughs> go around in circle. So in your opinion, and this is going back to tools, what are some of the tools that are underrated that you use yourself and recommend? For me, there are a lot of standard, let's say, approaches in this moment. So like if we take, for example, user profiles or journey maps, blueprints, maps of processes, storyboards. Yeah, I think there is a lot of it that is standardized. Uh, maybe something that is very difficult to find is still uh, the system map and the creation of visualization of a system. What is difficult to find, I think, is uh, a visualization that is really able to convey how the system is working, how different uh, actors or uh, players are interconnected to each other and uh, in a way that makes you find out something that you haven't realized yet or discover potential connections, etc. So yeah, I tend to use it a lot, but I understand it's, it's not so common and so it's something that uh, we, can, we can bring to the table. And then, then maybe it's new for many companies. Actually, it's true because it's not one you hear of frequently. <laughs> so yeah. I did a couple of podcasts where, well, actually, a few where we spoke about research, but one was literally only about research with Nina Schacht and Jane Check. So their background is more in psychology, marketing. But I want to see in your experience, if you have a story or an anecdote where research led to, I don't know, a, a significant breakthrough in a project. I always tell also my students that uh, if you come back from the research that you haven't discovered something that you didn't know or that changed your opinion on the project, maybe <laughs> yeah, there, <laughs> there was something wrong going on. But because research at the end is uh, a learning process and mm -hmm. process are grounded on listening to others, to other stimuli, but also listening to yourself in a way. So there is always that exchange. So you need to put yourself in the process, go through it. And then when you come back after, you are different in one way or the other. Then obviously, if you are exploring a topic that is far away from you or that you are already experts about, then obviously it's different. For me, it's hard to answer your question because obviously a thousand examples yeah, yeah. my mind at the same time, probably. I don't know if maybe sometimes to understand that you need to experience the topic a bit more. For me, it was surprising, for example, in a couple of situations when I was working in Frog, we were doing projects with uh, worldwide research. So there was always uh, a kind of an assumption from uh, our clients on one side that uh, people in different geographies, uh, when it comes, for example, to financial management, have uh, different approaches because of the way in which they develop their richness, uh, their wealth, uh, or a lot of uh, aspects maybe related to age, the cultural situation. And in one of those projects, actually, we came back and we said, yeah, look, we have been speaking with, I don't know, a young person in Shanghai with the same attitude of, I don't know, an older person in uh, Switzerland. <laughs> so 
I think uh, that was a big moment in which we realized that there were attitudes towards money, what you have been growing uh, that could overcome those boundaries in a way, which is because it's also a very personal conversation uh, and the discussion. And that changed the way in which we were structuring the project. Uh, one other time it happened, I was working on a research project about trying to design a new type of service and experience for people with diabetes to better manage their disease. What happened there was that we spent weeks before starting the research discussing how different the experience is if you are treating yourself with the pill, with the injection, with the pump, because obviously there is there are different levels of intrusion of those devices and uh, therapies in your life. But when we were conducting the interviews, we were talking to people, actually, we understood that there was a moment in which you discover that you have diabetes and uh, you need to learn all the management of it in terms of also estimating the carbs of what you are eating, estimating the impacts of physical activity on your body. All these things are difficult to learn, no matter if then uh, you, you are treating yourself in one way or the other. And so basically that also completely changed the, the way in which we were looking at the project. And we started to say, let's try not to solve all the difficult aspects of uh, that are related to the management of the disease, but let's focus on that moment, that initial moment in which you have to learn the math, let's say, of the disease and trying to do something significant there. Again, this is from research. I like those stories. Thank you for that. And I think many can relate to that because you can't solve everything. It's like at once, basically. It's starting small, taking a few steps. And, and after you see, because just to put things in perspective, oftentimes things are linked. One more here, actually. When is it that you released your book already? 10 years after launching the website. So reflecting back on this if you were to write your book again now, what would you change if there would be anything you would change or you would have written differently? I still like the, the way in which it's structured. Maybe it would be less interesting for me to write it now. Really? Okay. Because not, I think if I see that book as uh, an entry point uh, for somebody who is interested in service design and wants to understand a bit more about the practice or to learn how to integrate some of the activities in their everyday work. So yeah, for as an entry point, I think I would write it in the same way in which I've been doing it. But in this moment for me, it would be just less interesting to spend time on it. I think it's also because of maybe my perception of the maturity of the discipline. I'm more mm -hmm. interested, to, I have a stronger interest towards maybe seeing how it would expand in the future or talk about the more complex elements that we are exploring and experiencing in these days on the project. So, yeah. So there would be another book, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you have less than 10 years, 2029 though. Okay. Let me write it down. 2029. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Roberta. I don't know if there's anything else you would like to add. No, I think it's been a very interesting conversation also for me. And sometimes it's very helpful to have somebody asking questions. Actually, you asked me a couple of questions that made me 
thing. <laughs> Later. <laughs> I hope that was all right, actually, for you. I'm sure that's going to be, you know, enjoyable to the listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you've derived value from the show, you can subscribe on platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Your feedback is incredibly important to us, so please consider rating the show or leaving a review. It's a fantastic way to help other podcast explorers discover our content. To gain more insights, visit our website at ggutt.com. This is wgutt.com. And see you next time.